Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian border-related issues. I'm Steve Mirens. In this episode, Peter, Deanna, and I are joined by Bibas Vaz to discuss civil forfeiture. On February 8, 2019, the Vancouver Sun reported that British Columbia's Director of Civil Forfeiture was claiming that two properties owned by Sonny Wang should be forfeited to the government. We discussed Sonny Wang in Borderlines episode number 15. Sonny Wang was involved in one of Canada's biggest immigration frauds, using several companies to falsify documents to show that clients that had claimed that they were living in Canada had in fact not been. Sonny Wang was allegedly paid more than $10 million over this scheme, and in 2015, he was sentenced to a seven-year jail, seven-year jail term. He was released on parole in 2018. I encourage you to listen to episode 15 if you haven't listened to it before to learn more about Sonny Wang's fraud, as well as what constitutes misrepresentation in Canada's uh, immigration system. British Columbia civil forfeiture lawsuit says that in 2003, Sonny Wang, who immigrated to Canada in 1997 and became a citizen in 2000, had purchased a $1.5 million property in Richmond, and that in December 2007, had purchased a condo worth more than 760000 During the course of the CBSA investigation into Sonny Wang, he transferred both properties to his wife, apparently for $10. British Columbia's civil forfeiture director is claiming that Sonny Wong transferred the property to avoid forfeiture and that the properties were used to facilitate his fraud. So what is civil forfeiture? Bibas is a criminal defense attorney in Vancouver. He joins us to answer questions about what civil forfeiture is, how common it is, how the process works, and whether people should be concerned about the system. This is an area of law that neither Peter, Deanna, or myself practice, and it was fascinating to hear uh, Bibas tell us about how the civil forfeiture regime works. You can find Bibas at his uh, law firm, Hera Wowen LLP. His email is bvaze at h-i-r-a-r-o-w-a-n.com. Once again, you can find Peter, Deanna, and me on Twitter. And uh, if you like today's episode, I encourage you to leave a review on iTunes. I hope you enjoy. podcast. Uh, I'm Peter Edelman. I'm here with uh, Diana Okanachoff and Steve Murens. Uh, and we're joined today by uh, Bibas Basse, who's a uh, local criminal defense and uh, civil lawyer who does um, a lot of work in the civil forfeiture area. And that's what we're hoping to talk to Bibas about today. Uh, in uh, in particular, for, for those of you who've been following, and we've talked about the, the NUCAN consulting fraud uh, this was a, a very large uh, immigration fraud uh, that took place over several years in Vancouver in China, uh, involving many millions of dollars in, in fees and about 1,600 clients who got uh, status in various uh, fraudulent ways. Um, the uh, recent news 
is that the uh, BC Civil Forfeiture Office is pursuing uh, Sonny Wang to take, I guess there's a couple of properties that have, were moved into his uh, spouse's name or into some other, uh, um, or, or the, to have been moved around in other ways. Uh, so we thought it might be interesting to have a discussion with uh, somebody who actually knows about this stuff, seeing as uh, I don't think any of us, I can speak for myself, I know very little. Uh, so uh, welcome, Bibas. Thanks. Uh, Thank thanks. You. Thanks so much for joining us. And uh, maybe we can just start by, um, why don't we talk, uh, I'll, in terms of the the basics of this particular fraud is that what happened was it sounds like Mr. Wang. Well, actually, we know from the from the guilty plea that Mr. Wang was involved in uh, misrepresentation uh, and and basically creating fraudulent uh, passport stamps and fraudulent documents to support immigration applications and, and charging some rather uh, significant fees to do that. And there's different estimates as to how many millions of dollars he would have made. There were orders from the court, both in terms of fines, there were orders, we understand, from the Canada Revenue Agency in terms of unpaid taxes. Uh, and so now the civil forfeiture office is coming knocking. Um, what Do you want to just give us a, maybe a basic outline of what does that mean and, and what, what can we expect to have come down the, the pipe at this point? Well, uh yeah, it's, it's a complicated question as to what we can expect to happen. But what basically civil forfeiture, uh, the Civil Forfeiture Office can do and what civil forfeiture statutes of Eastern Canada allow is for um, a uh, civil sort of branch of any uh, provincial uh, attorney general. And the way they set it up in British Columbia, of course, is that they have a specific director of civil forfeiture but it operates under the rubric of the BC Attorney General. In other provinces, they have a situation where uh, the people who civilly seek to um, claim property that they say is tainted by criminal activity or unlawful activity. In other provinces, sometimes they actually have it as an actual branch or part of what the Attorney General uh, herself or himself can do. So in other provinces, you might see Attorney General of Alberta versus the named property, for example. What they've done in BC is that they've actually set up what I call the Directorate of Civil Forfeiture. What it allows them to do is basically lay a civil claim against property that they simply allege is either an instrument of unlawful activity or proceeds of unlawful activity. So an instrument would be, for example, if you were running a passport fraud out of your house and you were using your house as an office, you could claim that that house is an instrument of unlawful activity. It allowed you to um, to perpetrate your fraud. Uh, on the other hand, uh, what you could also do is say that any money that you made, so let's say you're perpetrating your fraud somewhere else, even outside of the country, but money that you gain from your fraud, if you put it into a piece of property that you own, it's alleged then to have to constitute proceeds of crime, effectively, by way of money laundering or simply simply saying that it is proceeds of an unlawful activity because you made money from an unlawful activity and put it in that piece of property. So uh, the, the case against um, this particular individual, Mr. Wang, um, uh, would... Well, it's an interesting thing because I think what they would have to have is some evidence that he either used his properties, the properties that are effectively his, 
to, uh, to engage in his fraud, or they would have to trace his funds in some way to find that, all the money, that any money he made from his fraud was somehow pumped into his property. Mm. Now, it may very well be, and this is the interesting thing, it may very well be that actually these homes, let's say, for example, um, they did uh, come from his wife or from relatives or something like that. Let's say he didn't use these pieces of property for the actual perpetration of his fraud. And let's say there could be no tracing whatsoever of any money that he made from his fraud going into those homes. Uh, Because, in fact, there's been some jurisprudence suggesting that the statute, civil forfeiture statute, only allows you to go after an actual piece of property that is linked to either proceeds or instrumentality, not what they would call, for example, lifestyle claims. A lifestyle claim would be, uh, let's say, if an individual has a legitimate job that is lawful and makes $10,000 a month uh, through legal means and um, pays the mortgage on the property uh, every month um, through through those legal funds. And let's say they've got a side hustle. It could be whatever, where they make an extra $5,000 a month but they use that extra $5,000 a month to pay for nice dinners, uh, vacations abroad, things like that, but they don't actually put it into the property that is being claimed. That would be what we would call a lifestyle claim. Uh, and uh, and uh, courts have said, and I would agree, that that's not something that should be able to be covered by civil forfeiture. The problem that arises is that even in Mr. Wang's case, if he uh, didn't use these properties as instruments, or if he didn't put any money from uh, his fraudulent schemes into these properties, the problem is that it's a civil forfeiture claim. So there is a civil action against him. He will have to retain counsel to defend completely against that. And the second thing he's going to have to do is he will have to go through the process of an entire trial, which could be weeks on end, to actually prove that he didn't put any funds from his fraudulent schemes into his property. But if there was any, for example, intermingling of funds, a court could find, even if it's only, say, an intermingling of funds of five to $10,000, under the statute, the court could find that it is proceeds of unlawful activity, even only to the extent, perhaps, of $10,000 but it's still proceeds. And the problem with the way the statute is designed is that it says if a court finds that something is an instrument or otherwise proceeds of unlawful activity, the court must order forfeiture. Not may, must order forfeiture. Of the entire thing. Yes, unless it is clearly not in the interests of justice. What is clearly not in the interests of justice? I should back it up. They can order forfeiture of all or part. But of course, you don't know that until you've finished the trial, right? Um, And what if it's unclear? Remember, the the standard of proof is a balance of probabilities. What if it's unclear if it was 10,000 or 50,000 or 100,000? You don't really know. And so the problem you have is while they've been talking in recent amendments to the uh, Civil Forfeiture Act in BC that there should be a reverse onus for defendants. There effectively is a reverse onus when it comes to the clearly not in the interest of justice component because it's only after the property has been shown to either be proceeds or an instrument of unlawful activity that you then get to say to the court, it's not in the, not in the interest of justice 
to order forfeiture. So let's say, for example, as much as I think certainly public opinion is against Mr. Wang, let's say on the other hand, his properties were much smaller. He has an aged mother, um, young children, going to a local school. His mother is over 90 years of age. She has no other place to go, for example. She did not engage in the perpetration of any of his crimes. Um, his wife, for example, let's say she didn't engage in the perpetration of any of his crimes. And let's say, for example, maybe his property is not that heavily linked to the actual unlawful activity. You could have a situation where children could be made homeless, uh, where aged people could be made homeless and a wife could be made homeless. One could make the argument that it's clearly not in the interest of justice to order forfeiture of such property. But Mr. Wang or any other litigant can only get there after the court has already made a finding of the property being either proceeds Mm -hmm. or an instrument. I have a question. Um, Maybe I'm not quite understanding. It goes to this thing about burden of proof. Um, Maybe I'm just not sure I'm understanding the lifestyle claim bit. Um, It's who has the onus of proving, like, if it's a matter of, as you said, the... Does the does the does the um, the prosecution need to be to be able to show there's an actual tracing of those funds to the home, or um, is it sufficient to show that just the legitimate sources of funds are not sufficient to bankroll that, um, and that the so how does how does that work? Well, that's that's a big question because the standard is a balance of probabilities, and so where you start drawing lines in that respect is a very complicated question. There have only been six cases, uh, to my knowledge, that have been litigated in BC through to trial, okay? And they were much less complex in terms of the instrumentality claims. So the first case that was litigated through to trial, the case of Ryan, I think it was 2011, um, there were three properties um, at issue, and um, one of them, uh, at least, um, clearly had a grow operation inside it, okay, that was unlicensed and all. So you, you, you couldn't get past instrumentality with respect to that. Um, and uh, So if you take that for an example, where it becomes much more complicated is this whole type of sort of inferential kind of stuff and how that interacts with the balance of probabilities sort of um, uh, statute uh, or, or um, standard proof, right? Because you know, in, in usual balance of probabilities cases, there are a lot less inferences that are that are being sought to be made, such as, so the civil forfeiture office acts like a prosecutor and wants inferences to be made, right? So let's take, if you take a, a standard civil claim, like a personal injury claim, right? Often the, um, the battle will be between the experts, right? Um, what's the extent of the injury of this person? What's causation with respect to, to, to this person? That sort of thing. So they battle it out and, you know, the evidence of one is preferred over the other. What civil forfeiture is trying to do in many cases is say that if we have, if we have found an illegal grow up in your property, uh, for example, and let's say it's only 50 plants or 100 plants, it could be consistent with personal consumption um, or, or personal use, right? In which case you're not making any money off of it. It's not trafficking. It's a, a violation of the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act in the, the sense that it's not licensed. 
But if you can't show that any money has been made off of it, it could be personal. The problem is that what they want to start doing is casting an automatic inference that if you cannot show that it is that no money was made or anything like that, um, we want to infer that obviously it's a trafficking operation and money is being made off of it. So. Um, and now they want to go one step further with the new proposed amendments in which they want to say that a presumption will be made that if there is evidence of unlawful activity, that something is proceeds or an instrument and it's a reverse onus on the defendant to actually prove that it's not. So, And if, if it's even partially funded by proceeds, that's sufficient to have them... Um, have satisfied the, the case for, for civil forfeiture? Arguably, yes. Okay. So in terms of the, the types of crimes, uh, the things that you said, there were, there were two things that raised interesting questions for me. So basically, any crime would be sufficient. For example, if I, was in, if, if I had a restaurant and I was employing somebody without a work permit, that would be even if there were no charges laid, that would be enough for the civil forfeiture office to be able to come after my restaurant. Or at least a portion of my restaurant. I would go one step uh, uh, further than that. Um, Simple allegations that are a breach of any statute anywhere in the world. As long as they can trace money that results from an offense under any statute anywhere in the world to British Columbia or whichever province is seeking to. So I was going to follow up on, I guess, what Peter just asked with the definition of unlawful activity. So that includes, say, like speeding? Yes, it could. Yeah. Yeah. It could legislatively or in practice, like, do you see cases where someone's speeding or um, fishing without a license or? All of that. All of that. So if you read the Civil Forfeiture Act, it says that anything that is an offense under any act in British Columbia, Canada, or indeed in any jurisdiction um, could be a a cause of action um, against property that is situated in British Columbia. Would there have to be dual criminality in the sense of if it was an offense in the place like, let's say, for example, I made money as a male prostitute in Saudi Arabia, which would be perfectly lawful here, but would be unlawful there. And I used those proceeds to buy myself a condo here. Uh, you know what? I have to look at the actual the, the wording of the statute specifically. Um, I believe... There's something along the lines, I mean, we could look it up right now, uh, but there's something along the lines of dual criminality. But effectively, though, if it is a, uh, an offense in another jurisdiction, you can seek to say that they've committed an offense somewhere else where property is situated in British Columbia, and we will go after it. Uh, in fact, I should look it up right now. Uh, uh, but please continue. Yeah. yeah, I have a ton of questions. <laughs> so, yeah. What? Like... So the BC Civil Forfeiture Office, do you know like how many people say work there and the dollar amount collected per year? Um, I believe it's, uh, this is roughly speaking, um, it's several million dollars a year, I believe as of the end of 20, 
2017, they had collected uh, over $40 million. Um, uh, and it could be even higher than that. I'm, I'm just doing that off memory right now, um, but I believe it was uh, in excess of $40 million. So just two houses in one span. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and that's why, and that's why, in fact, um, I think that there's an even greater push on going after properties now. Yeah. And Bibas, you said that there are six cases that have been litigated all the way to trial, but clearly there, it sounds like from what you're saying, there is a big going um, caseload that are being dealt with at a much earlier, like that are being resolved at an earlier um, state. Is that yes. Right? Um, yeah. I have actually been given statistics uh, by the Civil Forfeiture Office, uh, which I can't share with you, I don't think, uh, in terms of their actual numbers uh, at this time. But what I can tell you is there literally have been thousands of cases um, uh, that have settled. And so can you tell us a little bit about what that means to settle? Um... Well, what it means is that... um, uh, and I'll, I'll just uh, look up the act in a second. But what it, what it effectively means is uh, that you uh, give them a very large portion of the property, uh, or I shouldn't say very large, sometimes it's less. I mean, there have been occasions where you've been able to prevail upon um, civil forfeiture counsel okay. that, uh, that uh, they will ultimately lose in a big way should it go to trial, and your client might be in a position where they, they can say, we're actually going to be able to go to trial. Um, but even in those cases, you have to fork over money. You don't have, this is not a crown type of situation where they realize that they would, under normal charging statutes, have no reasonable prospect of conviction. Um, uh, they don't behave that way. That's just a simple reality. Um, they will always take their pound of flesh. You could have an airtight case where there's no evidence that the person was involved in unlawful activity. Let's say somebody who's renting to somebody, right? You rent, your, uh, you rent a room to somebody, unbeknownst to you, um, and you've been duly diligent to make sure that this is a person who's not doing anything illegal. Um, uh, you've been duly diligent, and, um, you, uh, and they sue you, right? I have never seen an instance in situations like that, and there have been many, where they've simply said, we agree, we're cutting you loose. Um, uh, We agree, we're cutting you loose, and um, uh, uh, away you go. So what you're saying is they're not only going after cases with the multi-million dollar house that they can get, they're also going after smaller cases as well, is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. They're going after. And this is now, let's get to, I mean, the nuts and bolts of it in terms of vulnerable populations, right? So one of the things we did in our office is we did a search of various orders that have come about, have come from the court. So the way in which they're trying to settle things now, and this is, I think, designed so they can say that they're winning basically 100% of their cases. Um, How they've been designing it is uh, when you settle with them, they have an order actually entered in court in which they say um, uh, forfeiture is granted with respect to this piece of property. And then in in paragraph two, they say relief from forfeiture is granted to the following extent. So say 20%. Let's say they've uh, taken, um, uh, you know, $1,000 and they're willing to give you back 200 just for your time. Uh, uh, 
they actually have to enter that in court. So we did a pulling of various orders um, that we've seen, and some of it has come from my own practice, some of it has come from uh, our searches and court records. There have been no shortage of orders from amounts, I think there was one even for $300, there was one for $1,000, uh, there's several for $1,000, amounts in the $1,000 range, and certainly in the five to $10,000 range. Now, let's think about $1,000. My concern is somebody in the downtown east side who is an addict, who has a long record, um, and is on the site of police as perhaps being a um, possibly a petty dealer to fund their addiction or something like that, or maybe not. Maybe simply suspected by the police to be part of that. They've gotten their welfare check. They've just cashed it. They're walking away and they get shaken down by police. $1,000 is taken. How is a person going to get the $1,000 back? You don't get legal aid for civil forfeiture. What, are they going to go hire a lawyer at $200 an hour to, to get $1,000 back, which they will then have to go through a full trial to get back? That might be their food money tomorrow. The other thing that they do, that falls under what's known as administrative forfeiture. What happens in administrative forfeiture is any amount that's less than $75,000 that is seized and referred to the civil forfeiture office, they send you a notice of administrative forfeiture. You have 60 days in which to respond. If you don't respond, they just take it. If you do respond within the 60 days, then you actually have to respond to a civil forfeiture proceeding couple of problems. If you are a particularly vulnerable person, you probably and may not have a fixed address. How are they supposed to get a notice of administrative forfeiture to you? So it's seized for amounts less than 75000 Yes. Seize first, procedures later. Yes. It's seized by police. Police do not have to lay a charge against the individual. They can simply refer the amount to the civil forfeiture office. This is happening a lot with vehicles, I should add. They take vehicles from people they think are quote-unquote drug dealers, and they just take the vehicles. Vehicles disappear. No criminal charges are laid. There might not even be a bona fide criminal investigation. But the way the procedure works is that police can take it. In many instances, they don't even file a 490 uh, or anything like that. They send, they, they hold it, then they send a letter of referral to the director of civil forfeiture saying that um, we saw this person behaving suspiciously. That's all they have to say. We saw this person behaving suspiciously. So-and-so is a known petty drug dealer in the downtown east side. We believe he was dealing drugs out of his car. We've seized his car. Go take it. And then if the car is, for example, only 10000 or less in value, they're supposed to send a notice of administrative forfeiture to the individual. So how many people per year is this happening to? Or how many civil forfeiture, administrative, or otherwise? Like, how many people, I guess, are impacted per year? Like I said, we've been sharing the statistics in the process of the discovery of an action. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I don't think I'm at liberty to be able to share it. But I am aware that uh, we're uh, talking about hundreds at least. Is it increasing per year? It definitely has been increasing. There's no doubt about that. And where does the money go? Well, that's that's another interesting question, is that they say, and that's what particularly disturbed me about the recent amendments, 
is that they uh, have talked about how they're doing it so they can combat the scourge of international gangs and fentanyl trafficking, something along those lines, okay? Now, under the statute, they're supposed to say that it's supposed to be going to certain victim uh, groups, okay? I do not know of money that is being seized by them going to the victims of fentanyl trafficking who are fentanyl users themselves. I do not know about that. And that's what makes me skeptical, of course. The second thing that I do know is the case is that they have a grants program. Their grants program uh, is that community agencies can apply to the Civil Forfeiture Office for grants to fund whatever community work they're doing. A lot of it has to do with, for example, um, Child Advocacy Center. Um, uh, uh, you know, at-risk youth. I did a search today, and I, I, it's a long list, so I couldn't complete it actually with the time I had today, but uh, I did not see anything going to a public health de-addiction facility. I did not see anything going to a safe injection site. And I would challenge them that if they are serious about what they say is battling the scourge of fentanyl by taking cash from people, then they should be setting aside a bunch of that cash and giving it to the safe injection site. They should be setting aside more of that cash and putting it towards a safe injection site in Surrey, a safe injection site in, in, uh, in New Westminster, or a safe injection site anywhere where people are dying from fentanyl overdoses, if they mean it. I would challenge the Attorney General, who is familiar with these issues, to do that. So every, from everything I can see so far, that hasn't happened. And let's see if it does. So let's, what's the connection needed to the property? Like how far does a connection between the property and the crime have to be? Like, could, you know, some guy is sending emails from a computer in his house while wearing clothes. In theory, like, could all that be seized right down to the clothes off his back that he was wearing while typing the email? Or? Like, how far removed from the actual crime does the property have to be? It, it can be as close or as far as the police who decide they're going to take the stuff decide on site. That's what's so sort of nefarious about this, is because uh, the only reason this can happen is from police acting pursuant to um, their police powers to search and investigate. Right? So what the director of civil forfeiture will tell you is that they have no independent ability themselves to investigate things, that they have to receive a referral from, uh, from police, which is fair and should be the case. Because if the director of civil forfeiture, for example, could simply go online and say, oh, this person in the press has been accused of doing something illegal, even though there's been no police investigation, the director would be you know, would be able to go rogue. And actually, I, I should say there's some indications that that might be turning into the case. But the reality of other jurisdictions. Here, here. Um, uh, and and uh, certainly with these new proposed amendments, when they say that they can go and just freeze bank accounts and stuff like that, it's starting to suggest the director is wanting to become a law of, uh, in this case, his own. Uh, but technically speaking, in terms of everything we've seen, what happens is there has to be an actual police investigation. The police do an investigation and then they forward, um, they can forward the fruits of their investigation 
to the director of civil forfeiture. So now this is the whole, whole key point. There are many instances in which they don't even bother forwarding it to Crown Counsel first. They go straight to the director of civil forfeiture. And then there are many other instances, in my experience, where they have forwarded to Crown Counsel. And Crown Counsel have said, this doesn't meet our charge approval standard, usually because the police acted in a really unlawful way. And then they just say, OK, and they turn around and send it to civil forfeiture. Many cases, they send it to both. Yeah, if I may, I mean, this is where I kind of want to loop it back to, you know, our core theme, which is the, you know, the immigration tie-in. And also to go back to something that you said before we started this session is this whole notion of constitutional creep, because um, this is something that we often see in the criminal inadmissibility um, sector, where um, things that can't get off the ground in the criminal field because of the charter protections that that exist in the criminal sector, CBSA is not bound by those same things in quite the same way. So the the looseness around, you know, the um, organized criminality and some of the things they're able to do in the organized criminality provision, under the organized criminality provisions that they couldn't do, like where RCMP can't get the conviction that they want, but they'll end up being able to pretty much get rid of the person forever and always with very little um, protection, no real hearing ability, no appeal rights, all of that sort of thing CBSA can do in the immigration context. And they are very clearly and very deliberately information sharing in the immigration context. It sounds like this is just another offspring of this same type of thing. It's exactly that. And uh, in fact, so in answering that, I'll just go back to what we were talking about earlier, which is a definition of unlawful activity. So I just have it here again, because unlawful activity means an act or omission described in one of the following paragraphs. Okay, This is in the preamble section of the Civil Forfeiture Act where they're defining everything, or I should say section one. And it does say that if an act or omission occurs in a jurisdiction outside of Canada, the act or omission at the time of occurrence is an offense under an act of the jurisdiction and would be an offense in British Columbia if the act or omission had occurred in British Columbia, but does not include an act or an omission that it has a couple of exceptions. But now the point about this, this comes back to this whole vagueness of all of it, right? Is that all you have to do is lay an allegation Right. So it's not like in an extradition process, for example, where in order to get somebody uh, to, to say that the person would be extradited, you have to first produce the evidence and you have to it has to be a very clearly defined uh, issue about whether or not there's the actual offense, the, the parallel offense that we say. So in the Meng Wanzhou case, of course, what I would think is that they've got a bit of a problem about, first of all, defining whether she's actually committed an offense. Right. Um, which is a big question. It's a huge question, right? In the civil forfeiture context, remember, all you've got to do is lay the allegation. And the property is also already at issue. So, for example, if there is... Um, well, um, you're right about... You used earlier the prostitution example, okay, that um, it's not an offense here, um, but it could be an offense in, a, in another jurisdiction. So what you're saying, sorry, is when you're talking about that these are the proceeds of crime, it doesn't mean something that has um, 
that the person is being convicted for. No. It's sort of like the committing an offense stuff under the ERPA with, um, it's just that the person has a reasonable belief that a crime was committed. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's like nobody has to be convicted. It takes it down to a anything. civil standard. Yeah. So, so what you would do, let's say, for example, you have somebody here, um, and this could be a problem in, in the future. You have uh, any Chinese person who owns a property in, in West Bend who formerly was affiliated with a ministry in China or something like that um, and um, has $3 million and the only evidence available is that the person um, was a public official in China and now owns a $5 million house, right? All the director of civil forfeiture has to do is say that this person was engaged in, um, in collecting bribes in China or money laundering in China. There's the equivalent offense here. And so we're seizing this property. And that comes back to what I say is the constitutional creep aspect of it is because you can be as vague as you need to be. The damage is done once you lay the claim. Because is this person who's facing, um, you know, let's think about this property value, the $4 million thing, okay? The $4 million property or the $3 million property, right? You could have done absolutely nothing wrong if the only property you own in the entire world is $3 million in that property, and you are faced with the prospect of going through an entire trial based on the vagueness of a law, so you don't know what the outcome is gonna be, based on a balance of probabilities which make it even further vague, what are you gonna do if you don't know what's gonna happen at the end? The director of civil forfeiture in some cases could probably just get the 1.5 million from that 3 million without doing a piece of work. You could have completely legitimately gotten that 3 million, but you're facing the prospect in an extremely vague process of potentially losing all of them. What, what does anybody do? So if a court orders like restitution, say, and so a person pays a $5,000 fine or a $10,000 fine, is the fact that they've already paid this restitution mean that, that they can't, they don't have to wind up paying it twice, like a second time in civil forfeiture? Well, I would make the, I would make the argument that you could try and argue um, res judicata um, in uh, that type of situation. So res judicata, of course, uh, for non-legally trained people, uh, that the matter has already been litigated and the penalty so to speak, has already been adjudicated. Um, however, um, what I think they would respond, they would say that, well, if it's just rest, well, because restitution is, I guess, a bit more complicated because you have to, how they come to a uh, appropriate adjudication of appropriate restitution is, is a bit, bit more of a complicated process, right? But um, uh, what I would say is that it is res judicata, um, but going one step forward, it might not necessarily link it to the property because you have to also think about instrumentality, right? What they've always made the argument about instrumentality is they might say that, okay, you have a property that you used to, um, to, to grow weed um, and, um, you know, and th this is the interesting thing about this, by the way, is that as they go forward with the um, marijuana type of cases, they still plead this whole bodily harm thing that you were engaging in a process that um, caused bodily harm to masses of individuals, even while the decriminalization process is going on. Um, but in any event, what, what happens is um, 
what they would say is that an instrumentality aspect of it means that they can forfeit the entire amount because we can't calculate the overall impact that it has had on the community. So if you had a grow up, right, and let's say you were growing for the last five years, maybe you made, maybe they can't trace any money or maybe they can't make the life, they have to deal with the lifestyle claim or whatever. What they will say is from an instrumentality aspect, it resulted in so much pain to the public that the only appropriate um, remedy would be full forfeiture of the property. That's what they would argue. But if I stole, let's say I stole $500,000 and used that to buy a house, got, got convicted, restitution was ordered, I paid the $500,000 back from some other source. At that point, they couldn't go after the house, or they could. They could, absolutely. So they could still go after the house, even though the $500,000 has been paid back to whoever I stole the money from. Yes. Um, now, again, you get into the whole thing about proceeds versus instrumentality, right? If the, because what, but what you would say is that, yes, the, the house was acquired through the, the ill-gotten 500000 and therefore it is proceeds. They can still go after the house. Okay. So even though you've paid the money back? Yes. So in this case, even though there's been restitution ordered in Mr. Wang's case... From what I understand, there was a nine hundred. There was there was a restitution order. I don't know who the restitution was to. Did you guys follow? Did you guys? I understand. Not to that yeah, I thought it was a fine that you didn't. Pay. Oh, was it a fine? Maybe yeah, it's a fine. It's a fine that you didn't. So I was gonna say restitution yeah. seemed a bit odd in this case. It sounds like yeah. the clients don't really deserve their money, but or many of the clients don't deserve their money back. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The um, the many of Mr. Wang's clients were very clearly knowingly involved. Yeah in the yeah. uh, they, they were hiring him to assist with the misrepresentations yeah. um, some that's less clear but in any event but, but so then that's a complicated question so if they're all engaged in the unlawful activity and they're paying him to do so um, you know what is the where is the public interest mm-hmm. you know it's I'm not saying all of them were I think the evidence was that um, some some, some varying were varying levels were, we're, we're in it, you know, no, the, the, the damages to the immigrate, to the integrity of the immigration system, not to, uh, I don't think the damages to the clients. I don't think anybody, there's a few of the clients that were, that were probably ripped off. I, I know I've dealt with cases where uh, Mr. Wang charged people ridiculous amounts to engage in fraud that had he just read the law properly, he would have realized was unnecessary. Um, you know, there, there were cases like that, but those were... I would say a minority of the cases that I've seen or read about, mm-hmm. um, that there seemed to be a number of cases where people were knowingly involved and were hiring this this outfit specifically for that purpose, uh, or at least there were a significant number of people who were uh, who were doing that. But I think the damage would be more along the lines of a tax fraud or GST fraud or. You know where where the integrity of the system or of the tax system would be. Uh, there aren't any direct victims more than the public as a whole. I think would be the allegation in, in Mr. Wang's case would be my suspicion. But Bebas, if I like the way that it works is that if there's a finding that these were the proceeds of crime, um, and so there's a finding that there should be a forfeiture, is there then a second determination made as to what? 
to what extent the proceeds should go to the civil forfeiture office? Is that how it works? Well, then they have to make uh, a determination about whether full forfeiture or partial forfeiture should be granted. And that then is intertwined with in the interest of justice. So if we just go to, you go to section six of the act. Um, uh, Let me just get there. I'm going to. But like, for example, the, the, the situation that, that, that Peter, the example that he gave, if there had been a theft of 500000 they could find that, yes, these were the proceeds of crime, but is it theoretically possible that they could say, however, the amount of the, um, the amount that should be um, repaid in terms of it should be minimal because of the fact that the repayment had already been made? Do you understand? Like, is that something that could be argued in terms of the, the justice component? Yes, yes, they could. But um, but it's, you know, the real issue comes when you're dealing with real property. So houses and, and all that kind of thing. Um, uh, because, you know, they will always say that, like, there's straight restitution where you can define the amount of restitution, right? You stole 500000 you have to give it back. And potentially with interest. Let's also say with interest. That's an appropriate restitution award. Okay. But um, what they will say is that um, effectively everything that you got from that was proceeds because you wouldn't have it if you hadn't stolen that money in the first place. So it's proceeds of unlawful activity. Proceeds from your having stolen the money in the first place. So they will argue that it's not um, res judicata on that basis. Mm-hmm. Um uh, because it simply is proceeds. And that's actually one of the things that you asked, sorry? Which is not unfair. If I had used 500000 to buy a house in Vancouver 10 years ago, yeah. to pay back $500,000 today, um, and then walk away with the rest of the value of the house, um, quite frankly, would be a significant windfall for somebody who would engage in criminal activity. You're right. You're right, except that the way we've tried, we've seen this being played out in practice is that the direct link that you've suggested in your example often isn't the direct link that they're talking about, right? So there are big business folks in highly placed positions, political and otherwise, in Vancouver, who, you know, rumors have been made that their early fortune came from certain illegal activities, which they were then able to build upon to start various businesses businesses, right? Um, But for the last 20 years, for example, every business they've engaged in has been um, completely legitimate, right? And the problem that we've started seeing in these cases is at what point is is the civil forfeiture office directed to stop? That your inquiries cannot do the excavation of the entirety of somebody's life. Your inquiries have to stop to an actual nexus. So, I mean, the, the example... Peter, that you've given of the actual stealing of the $500,000. If that was how it played out in practice, there would be a suggestion that you're right, it actually is fair um, when looked at, you know, in real terms. It's fair, um, and, uh, and the type of limits that we would expect to see are being employed properly. But that's not what we're seeing. What we're looking at is we're seeing people who have simply been accused of an unlawful activity. And then there's a request for what they call... So, so what they were doing in their pleadings, for example, is that they were pleading generally with no evidence. They were pleading, if they found um, a grow in your house, 
they would say that you acquire the property. Well, if they found a grow in your house in September of 2015, and you acquired the house 10 years previously, they will plead generally that you acquired the home and maintained the home through um, previous um, sales of uh, illegal substances. See, by my level, as, as an immigration lawyer, <laughs> I can tell you that I, uh, the, from my criminal law perspective, have them only having to prove things on a balance of probabilities seems like a very low threshold. The vast majority of my work is based on people being deported on a reasonable ground standard. And so, which is an even lower standard, uh, in other words, reasonable grounds to believe is the basis upon which people get deported for organized criminality, for criminality, for uh, any number of different things on... With no right of appeal, with no exactly, hearing. With, with very like, significant yeah. consequences. And so it's, um, in, in terms of things being done on a balance of probabilities, already seems to an immigration lawyer is like, Wow, that's a high that that's a high threshold, um, and we become inured to these uh, to these things. But then, when you, I can understand when you're thinking about somebody saying, "Well, you're going to lose your house yeah. if you don't prove where the money came yeah. from." But I get what you're saying, though, is that if you've grown your fortune um, over two decades, and they're saying that these are all proceeds of crime, that actually that criminal activity ended. So is there like a limitation to how far back they can go or retrospective? Well, this is another question. Yeah. Um, They wrote into the statute their own limitation period, which was a 10-year limitation period. They wrote it in themselves. Uh, And that then makes the further question about what is discoverability so far as that 10-year limitation period is concerned. So um, they have... the limitation period run from, like... Discoverability. So, so that's so. If you um, effectively, it's not clear actually. Uh, there hasn't been um, because they say that there's all these intermingling of funds and all that sort of thing, right? right? So they have written in ten years. So, um, so for Mister for Mister Wang, his uh, the new can frauds really started to pick up around. So there was a kind of slow transition from what was borderline genuine. Uh, consultancy in 2005, 2006, 2006 to 2007, it starts to really pick up. And then up until 2011, I think is when they execute the warrants. So is by that point, it's a full on fraudulent operation. Um, what you're saying is if they just recently filed this uh, this allegation in Mr. Wang's case, this would go back arguably to 2009, but not to the activity before then, or how would it that could work? arguably go back for the, the whole period um, that he's been operating. But maybe tell me what you mean by discoverability. Yeah, okay, well, discoverability. So, what, what I'm, I'm just have to, because again, I, I've sort of come to um, just know these things, and I yeah. don't always look at the uh, the statute, and you sort of go into it when you have to. But um, so under Part Seven, limitation periods, says the time limit for the director commencing an action, a petition proceeding, or a requisition proceeding under this act is ten years from the date on which the unlawful activity occurred. Okay. 
Um, the time limit for a person commencing an action against the government, it's another thing. But So they're saying 10 years after the date that the unlawful activity occurred. So arguably, for Mr. Um, for Mr. Wang, they could only go back to 2009 if they only filed just now. The problem is this. Um, it, it becomes a whole question of intermingling of funds, right? So um, does it really matter if he gained a lot of funds prior to 2009, right, and um, pumped them into his house and all that sort of stuff, or used them uh, to do that, they can effectively go in and find out all sorts of other stuff um, through the discover. Uh, discovery process, right, um, about finances and so on and so forth. So where it becomes a big problem is ha has to do with um, documentation questions. We need to get documents, for example, that shows the extent of the fraud, all that kind of thing. And then they manage to get all sorts of other things. So either way, the point is um, 10 years is a long time to then harken back and go mm -hmm. after somebody. But right? isn't it better for them to wait until the asset has grown to its biggest possible point before they exactly. start? Exactly. So it's actually promoting delay to it some is. extent, even though that might prejudice um, it might prejudice the person who's trying to defend themselves because Is there a timeline in which they have to dispose of a property that they've seized? Um, like in the case of a house? No. Um, the, the point is, well, part of the problem is that these things do take a long period of time. And what they often do is they result in a restraint of you being able to do anything, right? So, for example, if you owned a house, and it, the other thing they do is they put a preservation order on it, right? So what they probably would have done in Mr. Wang's case already is they've got a preservation order on his properties so that he can't sell them and the money goes into a bag and is put in the field somewhere. Right? If he wants to sell them, he's going to have to get agreement from them that he can sell the properties and all the money would be paid into court, and then they're effectively fighting about money. So it's perhaps not a coincidence that it's almost exactly 10 years to the day of when the operation was shut down that this civil... You know, that's an interesting point. I haven't looked at the date of the claim, but um, that's probably why they do it. And let's think about it also, is that um, if the operation shut down in 2011, and his wife continued to pay a mortgage on these two properties since that time. Why should they be able to seize the properties? Right? If, if he hasn't been doing anything illegal for 10 years, um, arguably... Um, Would have been in her best interest to default on the mortgage. <laughs> well, um, it, it would have been in her best interest, possibly. Um, if, if, you know, I was already starting to do a fair amount of civil forfeiture work by 2012 um, or 2011. If a client in a situation like that, um, I, I mean, what we were seeing in the early part of the, uh, you know, from 2010 and, and those few periods, mostly they were going after just grow-ups and stuff like that. There was really a much more instrumentality aspect of things. Mm -hmm. But now they're doing anything they can to link anybody's criminal activity to property. So I had a guy recently who um, had all his stuff, sorry? It is BC after all. Yeah, um, who had a bunch of his stuff seized simply because one of the things they pled is that he had been convicted um, of a serious crime uh, 15 years ago. 
And they said, essentially, their pleadings amounted to, you're a criminal, therefore, whatever you own has come from illegal activity. Even though the crime that he was convicted of had no real link to, um, well, no link to anything. The crime that was on his record was not linked at all to an, uh, a proceeds kind of, kind of case. And just really on the basis that there was no legitimate source of exactly. income. So what's to stop them now from going through the uh, police information database and just looking for criminals? Then going and doing a land title search. Because yeah, I can tell so. you that CBSA, when questioning people, are asking questions like, what, where do you live? What is the value of that property? What is your income? Because I've seen that in transcripts. And transcripts of interviews with drunk and high work <laughs> um, well, permit holders. Well, and what, what happened? This referral, presumably, what, what's interesting about this referral from my perspective is that this is one of the... CBSA set up its own investigations, criminal investigations unit. This has one, been one of their first big investigations that, like where they, that they took on themselves, as opposed to, for example, the Sun Sea and the Ocean Lady, which were done by the RCMP. These were, this was, my understanding is that this was a CBSA-run investigation, and presumably the referral either came through CBSA or possibly through the Public Prosecution Service. But if CBSA is starting to refer people for civil forfeiture, I think we might start seeing uh, a different level of interaction between immigration investigations, which often don't end in criminal charges. And, and often they investigate people for deportation purposes. Yeah, sure. I think yeah. um, Andrew Weaver at one point tweeted, and I'll hate it if I'm wrong on this, but Andrew Weaver tweeted that they should use civil forfeiture to go after immigration fraud that's resulted in, like, vacant home ownership. That's interesting. Yeah. So going from here, where presumably if the courts have held that it's constitutional, and we've been talking about this in the past tense, the U.S. Supreme Court, I believe just last week or two weeks ago, struck down nationally large aspects of their civil forfeiture regime there. I don't know if you probably know. Yeah, Tim, Tim's versus mind. Indiana. Yeah, so kind of what happened there and what did the U.S. Supreme Court rule? Okay, um, let, let me say something about that. First, I just want to say one thing about what you were talking about, about the investigative agency. So I, while you were doing that, I was just going through the act again. Part of how, what's create, created a problem is that they have information sharing agreements with different agencies. Okay, and what they've done, the director of civil forfeiture actually established information sharing agreements with the Vancouver, with the VPD, and with all the local regional police services, for example, on Vancouver Island, which allow them to simply share information with, um, uh, with uh, the director of civil forfeiture. So it creates a huge problem, and I think we'll have to explore this in the CBSA context, in the sense that, so what police were doing, for example, in the 490 process, is a lot of that information is supposed to be uh, put into court, and it's not supposed to be shared for other purposes. Yet, what the director is doing is... Can you just explain what the 490 process is? Okay, yeah. So the 490 process, of course, is that if you see something over the course of which supposed to be a criminal investigation and under the plain view doctrine of search you're only supposed to be seizing those things that are supposed to be affording evidence with respect to a criminal investigation uh, or is in plain view that would 
indicate that there is an ongoing criminal offense, for example. You then have to file a report of anything seized with the court so that obviously people can ensure that um, uh, that uh, people just aren't, law enforcement authorities aren't just stealing stuff. But then when it goes into the 490 process, um, and Peter, you might know more about this than, uh, than I do, but there are certain rules regarding just sort of sharing that information with anybody, right? Uh, because it goes into the court, it's filed in the court and, and, and all of that. Yet they're able to get past that all the time with the director of civil forfeiture by just letting the director of civil forfeiture know that um, this is evidence and actually forwarding uh, parts of the actual evidence itself to the director. And there's a big question about whether any of that is legal. Um, notwithstanding what the director writes into his own statute about information sharing agreements or the information sharing agreements that are established. So the question that's going to come up, which you uh, rightly point out, Deanna, is the the whole issue of, um, well, what is CBSA actually doing here and what authority do they have to share information, including in context where they haven't uh, followed constitutional obligations, but they can simply send it over to the director. And I think you, you've all raised a really important point that I think your clients in the immigration context who have money and assets should really, really start thinking about um, uh, whether they should, quite frankly, be protecting their assets better. Because that might be the next frontier. Yeah, I was just reading it. Exactly. Like Andrew Weaver in question period has raised several times um, using civil forfeiture on immigration slash tax fraud. Exactly. And the other area where we think we're going to start seeing it is um, in securities. There's, there's already been some in securities, but, um, uh, but, um, uh, but not a lot. I've talked to people in the comp- at the competition who do competition law. Uh, they think that there's potential um, civil forfeiture uh, proceedings going to start coming into that area. Violation of the Competition Act, yeah. right? Uh, but to get back to your original question, sorry, just so Tim's versus Indiana was really interesting because it comes back to this whole restitution thing you were asking about. Because Tim's, um, uh, I believe, it was either that the maximum he could pay under the statute. Um, so what happened is he had a Land Rover that was worth about $40,000. He said that he uh, got the Land Rover because his father had just passed away. So he was a drug addict, um, and uh, he was supporting uh, his habit effectively by dealing out of his Land, land Rover. He didn't have a higher rate, you know, a lot of money or, or much income or anything, but he said that he had gotten uh, a settlement, I think, either from his father's estate or from a personal injury action, which gave him the money to get the Land Rover. And he, I believe, he directly linked. He said, that's how I got the Land Rover, right? So then what, what happens is, I think the maximum amount he could pay under the Indiana statute and the, under the criminal statute was $10,000 or something as a penalty. But the civil forfeiture, the Indiana version of it, wanted the entirety of the vehicle. And the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously said that that would effectively constitute cruel and unusual punishment. So they go back to their earlier statutes on improper taxation, basically, that this should be read. It's, it's a complicated thing in terms of U.S. constitutional law, but the whole question is whether, um, I, I believe it was the 14th Amendment or, or something like that. Taking of, a red Land Rover can be constituting cruel and unusual punishment? Well, it wasn't a question of taking, it, it, it was that you should not be subject to any fine okay. or... Um, 
improper taxation that exceeds what um, what is appropriate in the circumstances. So the reason I liked it is because they were basically making an analogy, which I pled in my constitutional challenge, of cruel and unusual punishment. That is that the end result, because remember, we don't know the end result of all of these cases, right? Um, uh, or if there's going to be an improper settlement, for example, because of the way these cases proceed. Right. So when you start the case, if you sold $5 worth of weed, but there was an instrument of unlawful activity aspect because you grew weed in your $3 million property, you have no idea whether the entirety of the $3 million um, could be um that the $3 million property could be forfeited. The statute doesn't say there's a limit, right? So it's really going to be up to the court's discretion to determine whether some or all of it is, right? And as you very well know, Peter, um, in terms of the constitutional litigation, right, when you don't know what the result could be and if the result could be cruel and unusual punishment, that makes it unconstitutional. Right. Although... I, I guess my challenge is with respect to property rights, which specifically aren't protected by yeah, the charter. Exactly. I'm just wondering how do you, where, where do you, where do you bring property rights? In the U.S., the property rights yeah. are protected yeah. under their constitution. Yeah. Or at least that's my understanding of U.S. constitutional law. Well, here they specifically didn't include economic rights in the charter, and so I'm just wondering what your, where your hook is there. And that's, that's exactly what I'm finding jarring because it's just so far removed from what we would consider. Well, and that's, that's precisely what the problem is, is. Part of it is because you have to litigate it under Section 7 and the case law in terms of trying to find property rights under Section 7 is not positive from that perspective. But the question is, can you think that the potential that you commit, because remember, they have to link this to actual offenses, right? They have to say you committed an offense. In this case, let's say you sold $5 worth of weed in your $3 million property or you, um, or you uh, were growing for personal consumption, so instrumentality, okay? Yes, it's property that's at stake. The problem is you have to show that the person committed the offense. And so effectively, what you're doing is you're forfeiting the property, especially in a situation where the per- person was not criminally charged. You're forfeiting the property as a penalty for the offense. Good luck with that. I'm just saying yeah. good luck with that because we've tried it in the deportation context and it's gone nowhere. In the deportation context, the which is exactly the same scenario, people are not criminally charged, they face deportation, and we've tried to argue that that's a penalty because it sure feels like a penalty when you do something yeah. and they say you've done something wrong and they throw you on a plane and send you back to your country. Uh, the the courts have been pretty adamant about not framing that as a penalty. But I, if yeah. you're successful, I'm happy to take that that yeah. uh, that that those uh, those those successes and litigate them in the in the immigration context. And well, the other part that I find really jarring, just from like a rule of law, procedural fairness kind of perspective, is that even if you have a very strong case to defend yourself, is a massive endeavor because even though we all earn our living being lawyers. Trying to argue one of these cases is like hundreds of hours of preparation and work, and the fees are there in accordance with it. Um, yeah. So, 
the burden of having to actually even face one of these claims is just enormous. And if you have only $5,000 at stake and you've done absolutely nothing wrong, yeah. Are you going to be able to face a two-week trial or a constitutional challenge? Pay all legal of it? fees. And, remember, and right. remember, you're not going to get any legal aid funding. Oh. You might at least get that in the immigration context, in some immigration uh, context, in terms of deportation and things like that. But you won't get it in any civil forfeiture case. And I mean, that's why I like this, I like this parallel. Uh, which I hadn't thought about before, uh, about uh, these these standards that apply equally across between immigration and this kind of vagueness. And it comes back to your point, Deanna, about the constitutional creep, yeah. which is that if we can do things in areas where people don't have the same ability to fight back... No. Um, they just get entrenched. They get entrenched, and what I think people do is they say, okay, let's go into another area of law. Um, that will allow, like, so for example, if they're going to bring in new regulations to combat international criminal gangs and drug trafficking, right, the criminal bar is going to be all over that immediately, right? Um, and people are going to get legal aid if they have to challenge it. Um, if they say, well, push it into the civil forfeiture realm, doesn't mean that um, there's any less of a threat to your constitutional rights. In fact, there's a greater threat to your constitutional rights because your ability, I mean, that's one of the, I suppose you could say, positive things about the criminal process is that if your constitutional rights have been violated by police, right, you have the ability to get a remedy by defending yourself against the charge on a constitutional basis. In the civil process, because of the way the civil process works, you effectively don't get any other remedy. And that's what I was arguing in the, in the Lloyd Smith case years back, which is that there's no right without a remedy. And by employing the civil process where people are forced to settle, effectively they get no constitutional remedy in but this case. The other reason that these get really entrenched is because the public really has not a lot of sympathy for any of these complainants. Uh, you're not, nobody's going to cry a river for Sunny Wang. Uh, I think in these I think it's lack of knowledge. Like, I like when I read Tim's. I read it thinking, well, okay, maybe some states in the U.S. allow police officers to just seize cash or vehicles, but in Canada, we have BC. We have that civil forfeiture office, and wouldn't happen here. No, uh, which apparently is not how it works. No. <laughs> so I, I was, I like, I think it's, yeah. um, I think it's just lack. Of well, I would highly recommend to anybody um, to read an article that came in the 2000, August 2013 um, edition of the New Yorker. I don't know which week exactly, but in August of two, 2013 by Sarah Stillman called, quotes, Taken. And it talks about what's going on in the U.S. And it talks about young people, for example, because, of course, the way their policing jurisdictions work there is it goes from county to county or even town to town, depending on how it works. And you have a local sheriff who's decided he's going to use local civil forfeiture statutes to basically pull over anybody who's driving through their two-horse town um, on any given day. And so farmers who have just sold their tractors get their $20,000 taken. Priests who are coming back from Guatemala get their money taken, all sorts of stuff. And... The reason I mentioned this article is because when it came out, everybody was like, well, that wouldn't happen in Canada. That wouldn't happen in Canada. It's happening. Yeah. 
so much so for that, a quick 30 minute session. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It turned out to be a very interesting <laughs> question. It was, it was a great discussion. There's also a good piece by John Oliver. I, I've seen, I think John Oliver. John Oliver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite well done. It's my education on this. Um, as he is my education on many things. Uh. <laughs> well, one, one final point, though, I, I will just say, you were saying about the public not knowing. You know, I get asked this as well, and it is true. You're right. Sunny Wang, there's not a lot of sympathy. The constitutional challenge right now is the Hells Angels case, all that sort of stuff. I'm not, I'm never making the argument that civil forfeiture should not exist at all, okay? And I'm never making the argument that there are people who are making a lot of money off of things that they shouldn't be taken down in some way. The interesting thing is groups like, um, you know, not, I don't have any knowledge of any of this, but I think we can all sort of say that groups like the Hells Angels or other international gangs might view the seizure of a piece of property as possibly a cost of doing business. Um, uh, and, you know, I suspect that the case that's going on right now in terms of the, the constitutional challenge with the seizure of the clubhouses is a point of principle, okay? But it's also an organization. What's happened is the fallout from trying to go after organizations in terms of its effect on individuals mm-hmm. has been crazy. It's similar, for example, to earlier things like anti-terrorism legislation and so on and yeah. so forth. Yeah, is there a national security problem in terms of potentially people involved in terror going across borders and stuff like that? Sure there is. But that doesn't justify taking people whom you have a scintilla of evidence and putting them in jail um, uh, because you very weakly suspect that um, that they're up to no good. And that's the concern we have to have. Yeah, you know, sure, people should be able to combat the big groups, but the effect on everyday individuals, including these potentially vulnerable individuals in the downtown east side who've just cashed the $1,000 welfare check, could be enormous. On that point, thank you very much for joining us today. That's uh, it's been it's been great. I think uh, all of us are leaving more educated. Yeah, more disturbed. But uh, all right. Well, thanks so much. Thank you.